Hello and welcome to The Wire, your independent national coverage of current affairs right across Australia on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Amina Shakur coming to you from 3ZZZ Radio in Melbourne, Victoria. And today on the show... Broadly, there's a a real problem that generative AI produces relatively boring output. As AI technology grows, the media industry is struggling to keep up. A report reveals striking health differences in Australian refugees, underlining the need for tailored support. And universal design for learning is not just for students with disabilities. It actually works for everybody in the classroom. Dungeons and Dragons game aids neurodivergent youth social growth and learning. We'll have this and more for you over the next half hour. Thanks for being with us today. We're on air right across Australia thanks to the Community Radio Network and the support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. First up today. Artificial intelligence has woven its threads into every corner of the industry and the media world is no stranger to its transformative power. Yet as AI's influence steadily grows, the media industry must evolve and adapt. Dr. Rob Nichols, an associate professor specialising in regulation and governments at the University of New South Wales Business School, sheds light on the necessary changes for consumers, media outlets and journalists to strive in the shifting landscape. How can AI be used in writing the news? The approach that can be used with generative AI is to provide a prompt and the generative AI can come up with an answer. The normal thing, though, is that many generative AIs were only trained on a particular period of time, and so what they'll come up with directly isn't necessarily the the news because it's not new. On the other hand, if you use a prompt and some external data, you can make a generative AI produce some not too bad copy. So for example, if you know what the weather is going to be tomorrow, creating that from a few data points into a descriptive, tomorrow will be sunny with some cloud in the morning, a high of 24 and a low overnight of 18. Um, That sounds okay as it's uh, said, it looks okay in written form. And it could readily be done using a few data points from the Bureau of Meteorology or some other weather source, and then a generative AI to add the words around it. In your recent article, you wrote, for better or worse, AI is changing the nature of news media and will have to wise up if we want to protect the integrity of this institution. How can media outlets, governments and the public at large protect the integrity of the media from AI? Well, the most important thing is to have uh, people, journalists like yourself, who are actually involved in the production of the news. So broadly, there's a a real problem that generative AI produces uh, relatively boring output and can only do it based on specific data. So there is an issue where 
the news could end up becoming very uh, staid and uninteresting unless you retain humans in the loop. And that means that particular issues have to be addressed by journalists. You can't just leave it to AI. So one approach would be to just have as a policy. We will be using journalists for uh, all of the important stories. We might use AI to help journalists in research, to help journalists identify potential sources, but the work must remain their own. You also mentioned in your article, News Corp Executive Chair Michael Miller revealed that the company had a small team that produced about 3,000 articles a week using AI. On a human level, do you see a mass exodus of journalists losing their jobs to AI in the future? Well, I think there's a, a general problem anyway with the number of journalists who are employed more generally. And we've, we've seen steps being taken to try and reduce that uh, uh, approach, which reduces the number of journalists, like the News Media Bargaining Code. But there is a risk if a business, a, a news business, doesn't actually understand how important journalists are in producing the news, that an assumption, well, news isn't that important to us, we can use AI to do it, is a real risk. On the other hand, the difference between journalistic produced news content and news content that's been produced by AI is so significant there is a risk to the business of, uh, well, if we'll let the journalists go and we'll use AI instead, that they will also lose their readers, viewers or listeners and the associated advertising revenue. It's, so it's a, a balance that needs to be got. Using AI to help journalists is great. Using AI to replace journalists is probably a poor business model. If major media outlets use AI as a primary function for news, where do you see the future of media and journalism heading? Well, there is a real risk that if that approach is taken, that actually there won't be the coverage that is critical to the functioning of society by journalists, that there aren't enough data sources to be able to run an AI system, even if you had an AI that uh, essentially took all of the major news wires, well, that's okay if that's what you want on a national level. But how would you find out about an impending uh, thunderstorm in Melbourne which has an asthma allergy risk associated with it because it kicks up pollen? that type of issue simply wouldn't be picked up. So you have a, a significant risk that the news will be devalued, but also a risk that the value which people have of the news, it's representing what's happening in a, a localised area or a, a particular region will be lost because generative AIs were trained on in the main, on the internet as a whole, not what's important to people who live in Melbourne. And f that was Dr Rob Nichols from the University of New South Wales Business School speaking to Gabriel D'Angelo.
The Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, AIHW, has just unveiled a game-changing report on the health of refugees in Australia. This report... This report uncovers striking differences in their health experience compared to other migrants and the wider Australian population. I spoke to Vanessa D'Souza, AIHW spokesperson, on its crucial step towards ensuring refugees receive the support and health care they need. How do the health uh, conditions of refugees differ from other permanent migrants and I guess the other uh, general Australian public? Thanks, Marina. This is our first report about the health of refugees and humanitarian entrants in Australia. So we are hopeful that this starts to shed some light in areas that we know little. Um, There's some of the key differences that we're seeing in long-term health conditions and health service use compared to other permanent migrants and the Australian population include looking at the self-reported long-term health conditions, so things like diabetes and kidney disease, stroke and dementia were higher than the rest of the Australian population. But um, opposite to that, they were less likely to self-report mental health conditions or cancer. In addition, they were also refugees and humanitarian entrants were also most likely to go to a GP and seek a consultation in 2021, and almost all of those were bulk billed. So we did see, for example, that refugees and humanitarian entrants have a lower mortality rate compared to with the rest of the Australian population. But of concern, they do have a higher mortality rate for certain causes of death. So we did see with accidental drowning, um, those deaths were 2.4 times more likely to happen within the refugee and humanitarian population. And there could be various reasons for that. Um, That could be because coming to Australia, they may have less adequate knowledge about water safety or lack of swimming and water safety skills. Um, And so it's a a really good opportunity then to shine a light on what could be done uh, to promote Um, and reduce those risk factors within the refugee and humanitarian community. Why is the understanding that uh, the health outcomes of refugees um, are important for policy services? So I guess like um, talking about what more can we do uh, to to prevent um, the the accidental drowning or um, cancer, uh, the liver cancer in among the refugees? What we're hoping is that being the first report of its kind by the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, that we start to promote the needs of this important community and that by using linked data and that and the expertise of the Institute, that we're able to bring together a range of different data sources. So we looked at MBS and PBS and um, so prescriptions or attendance to GPs. We looked at the census and how people self-reported long-term health conditions, and then we looked at causes of death data. And bringing all of those together, we're hoping that policymakers and service providers can start seeing if there are trends within particular um, long-term health conditions that maybe they could start targeting particular countries of birth, people from particular countries of birth. Um, Perhaps that might be translating materials. Uh, Perhaps that might be a cohort within their Uh, primary health network that they're not tapping into and they're not reaching, that they could start uh, targeting. So we're hoping that policymakers and service providers 
have a um, greater insight and can use our information. Noting this is only stage one and stage two when we start looking at housing and homelessness data and hospitalisations data will provide an even richer picture to enable that policy and service delivery approach. That was Vanessa D'Souza from the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare speaking to The Wire. Neurodivergent young people in South Australia's Riverland are benefiting socially by playing a top table game called Dungeons and Dragons or D&D. D&D is a game which entails a group of people role-playing as different characters guided by a central person called a game or dungeon master. Besides the social aspect of D&D, the game also involves maths and literacy. The wise contributor from Tune FM, Ash Taylor, asked lecturer from School of Education at the University of New England, Dr. Rose Mututa, what struggles neurodivergent students face in the classroom? So a lot of uh, neurodiverse people, people with ADHD, autism spectrum disorder, will struggle with social skills. They will struggle with overcoming barriers in the classroom, uh, making friends. They will struggle with literacy and numeracy. And they will also struggle with executive functioning, for example, organizing their lives. And it is something that can be taught to these students. We just need the time and space. And these games have proven to be uh, very, very good because they get to meet people like them who are neurodiverse and they also get to meet other people. We don't use the name no more anymore. So they meet other people and they can exchange ideas and they learn from watching what other people are doing and how people are performing and waiting skills. For example, awaiting turn taking. Some of the neurodiverse people struggle with that a lot. So watching other people waiting their turn to perform a skill, to perform a task, they also get to learn that. So what are some of the current methodologies in place to help students in the classroom? So we do have quite a number of strategies to help them in the classroom. We use uh, strategies such as uh, differentiation. For example, uh, universal design for learning is a very, very important skill that we use. And universal design for learning is not just for students with disabilities. It actually works for everybody in the classroom. So what we do is we make sure that we prepare the class. You need to be proactive. Before you go into the classroom, you should know what students you have in your classroom. So I've got a student with visual impairment, hearing impairment, ADHD, autism. So you know who is in your classroom so that when uh, you're preparing, you're doing your lesson plan and you're preparing the materials, you have a range of activities for the different groups in your class. You've talked about Dungeons and Dragons are important because the students kind of identify with the characters. They are able to actually think of the stages. They're looking at the stages from one stage to the other, what skills they gain from that stage, uh, working as a group because uh, drag Dungeons and Dragons works as a party, you work as a party, you work as a team. And teamwork is one of those skills that we try to teach in the classroom for all students, in fact. How could aspects of Dungeons and Dragons be incorporated into the classroom to benefit these students? So 
literature says that we haven't actually used as many games in the classroom as we should to uh, support students who are struggling, especially the neurodiverse students. But we always, we actually have board games. We use board games, we use other maths games and literacy games in the classrooms. But usually we use them as a time that we give the students free time, you know, after you've done some good work, then you can have five minutes on the computer. But I think we need also to change our attitude so that we can use a game that like Dungeons and Dragons as a teaching tool. Because if students are benefiting in literacy and numeracy, why not? Why can't we use these games and dedicate some? Uh, I did read some studies that have been done, yeah, testing, you know, checking how uh, or assessing how students, uh, how teachers are using games in the classroom to teach students. And they have had a success rate, a very high su success rate in um, seeing the outcomes, better outcomes for students with disabilities. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. Thank you so much. And thanks for sharing an education perspective on this. Yes. Because it's really great to hear about ways that this can be incorporated and the fact that it is in some way already being incorporated. It is. It is. Uh, a lot of schools have incorporated di digital games and uh, the success they have noticed. And it's not just uh, success in literacy and numeracy. It's also uh, the students because the games have advanced. We have come from uh, quite, quite a, you know, quite a distance from where the game started. So these games actually vary the level. When they, the, uh, the computer realizes this student is not at this level, they bring the level down. If they realize the student is more gifted and talented, they actually increase the difficulty. So it is good for st one thing that we do not like to see with uh, all students in our classrooms is failure. Repeated failure makes a student feel like they are worthless. Their self-esteem goes down. So the fact that the games can adjust to the student's level so they can actually, you know, get some success and, and also get some challenges. The other thing that... Um, the game teaches the student, these games teach students is that repeating uh, or doing the same thing several times is good for mastery. That was Dr. Rose Mutata from University of New England speaking with Tune FM's Ash Taylor. You may have seen magpies across your neighbourhood and think their only job is to attack during the mating season. But according to new research, human noise population is taking its toll on the iconic Australian bird, affecting the songbird's ability to forage for food and to communicate. The wise contributor for RTRFM, Fiona Bartholomus, spoke to the University of Western Australia's PhD candidate at the School of Biological Sciences, Grace Blackburn, about this research. It's affecting the songs a bit. New research has found that human noise pollution is taking its toll on the iconic Australian magpie. It's affecting the songs a bit, the songbird's ability to forage for food, communicate and respond, respond to alarm calls. But it seems smart birds are less affected than others. We are joined now by PhD candidate Grace Blackburn from UWA School of Biological Sciences, who has recently led a study looking into the impact of man-made noise on magpie behaviour. Good morning, thanks for joining me on the record. Hi Fiona, thanks for having me. So many people have probably heard the term noise pollution before, but at what point does sound become noise pollution? 
Well, we refer to uh, man-made or anthropogenic noise pollution as kind of any noise that arises from human activities because obviously there's a lot of, you know, natural noises in the environment, mm. you know, just birds calling, um, the sound of, you know, rain, waterfalls, all those kinds of things which have been occurring in our environment for, you know, many, many millions of years. Um, whereas human pollution is obviously a little bit more recent um, and, you know, the, the noise pollution that we make can be very loud and can uh, affect animals in a, in a multitude of different ways. So where did this idea come from looking into the impacts of noise pollution specifically on magpies? Um, it's pretty well known now that noise pollution, also in marine environments, can really affect um, marine mammals. Um, and I think noise pollution and looking into its effects on birds is becoming more and more common as well. Um, we have a population of Western Australian magpies at UWA that we've been studying for 10 plus years. Um, and we kind of realised that some of our populations are actually out in Guildford, quite close to Perth Airport. And so these individuals are probably within four kilometres of Perth Airport and they're directly under the flight paths of planes that are leaving Perth. So they're exposed to some pretty massive anthropogenic noise events every day. So we thought, why not see what effect this is having? Because obviously these birds are having to put up with, you know, sometimes upwards of 90 decibels of um, anthropogenic noise, which is very, very loud. Um, you know, a plane flying directly overhead or a train going directly past you, it's pretty loud and pretty aggressive. And even most people would say that that affects them. So we wanted to see how that's affecting the magpies that we know from this area. Yeah, we can obviously assume if we're impacted by, like you were saying, loud trains and planes, then obviously it will be to the extreme for wildlife. Yeah, exactly, because I think even... Because even when I've been doing my field work out in Guildford, really, I've noticed, um, you know, a plane or a train will come past and the train will blast its horn and I will instinctively try to cover my ears because it's such a loud and, you know, aversive sound that I don't really want that. It hurts my ears even. So obviously if it's affecting us, it's going to be affecting the birds even more because they don't even know what it is. So how are the noises we are making impacting magpies' behaviour? So we found that um, noise that's above 50 decibels, so 50 decibels is probably the sound that you would get in most office settings. Um, it's not particularly loud, but even at this kind of low threshold, noises above 50 decibels will decrease how long magpies are spending looking for food. It'll decrease their ability to find food or their foraging efficiency, and it will decrease the amount of vocalizations that they produce. Because obviously, if you're vocalizing and no one can hear you, there's not really any point. So it's, it's uh, probably the, the better strategy to just stop vocalising and save the energy costs that are associated with that and vocalise when noise maybe is quieter or less present. Um, and we also found that magpies, when noise was present, are worse at responding to an alarm call, um, which obviously can have some pretty, pretty big impacts on their uh, survival because if you're not responding to an alarm call, you're not responding to cues of danger and you might actually get eaten. I think it's quite interesting that there's a link there between the noise pollution and them not being able to forage for food or not foraging for food as long. Mm. Why do you think there's a bit of a, a connection there? Well, I think that the when you're looking at you know time that they're spending foraging, because when noise is present, often birds will kind of view that as a threatening stimulus or even potentially it could just be a distraction. And because of that, birds are actually spending more time vigilant when noise is present. So they have to be 
on alert uh, for predators and they spend more time kind of scanning the environment and less time therefore can be allocated to foraging. But then we also know that magpies do use uh, auditory cues to locate subterranean prey. So they'll listen. Um, often you can see them tilt their head to the side and that's them listening for the sounds of worms or bugs crawling in the soil. And they'll use these cues to locate where the prey is and then they'll just kind of pounce on it, uh, spear the ground with their beak and they'll come up with a worm. And obviously when noise is present, it's going to be harder for them to hear these sounds. So their foraging efficiency is also going to be affected. That was PhD candidate at the University of Western Australia, Grace Blackburn, ending the story by RTR-FM's Fiona Bartholomus. And unfortunately, that's the end of today's show. Thanks so much for listening wherever you are in Australia. The Wire is a co-production between community radio station 3ZZZ in Melbourne, 2SER in Sydney, Radio Adelaide, 4ZZZ and Radio 4EB in Brisbane. With the great support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and Community Radio Network. Check out all of our stories on our website at thewire.org.au and follow us on Twitter and Facebook. The Wire acknowledges the traditional custodians of the Kula Nations where this program has been produced. And we pay our respects to the Aboriginal Elders past, present and emerging. I'm Mamina Shiku coming to you from 3ZZZ Radio in Melbourne, Victoria. Thanks so much for your company and we'll see you next time on The Wire.